listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, today I'm going to speak to you today on the topic of how to survive a storm. How to survive a storm. Because even though I don't know most of you, I know a few of you, a few friends have showed up that I've known in previous years. The fact is this, that uh, I know something about you. You are either in a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're about to go into a storm because all of us experience storms. For some of you, it may be a health storm. Maybe this week the doctor told you things about yourself that you thought could only be true of other people. It could well be that you've lost a loved one. It may be a financial storm. Maybe it's a legal storm. As a matter of fact, a number of years ago, there was a lawsuit filed against me and against Moody Church that dragged on for 10 years that eventually we lost. Maybe it's a legal storm. Somebody said to me the other day, this summer, he said that I am being sued for something. He's speaking about himself, and he says, I am being sued, and it looks like I'm going to lose everything, including my family. I didn't know all the details, but everybody has a storm. And today, I'm going to give you seven lessons on how to confront a storm and how to manage your storm, and these are so important, these lessons. They are so critical that we are actually going to have them on the screen behind me. But more than that, I want you to write them down. Use the offering envelope that should have been used for other purposes a few moments ago, if you still have it. And and then what I want you to do is to laminate them, type them up, laminate them, put them on your refrigerator, because the day is going to come and you're going to need these lessons. I'm sure that the young techies that are here today, maybe they can email it to you in printable form or whatever. But I want you to remember this because these lessons are transforming and they will help you. Well, the passage of Scripture is actually the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, and uh, I'm going to be picking it up and reading it, beginning in verse 22, I think it is. Immediately, speaking of Jesus... Immediately, Matthew 14, 22, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. I have a question for you. Is that your story today? The wind is against you. We'll read a few more verses. It says, In the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately... Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Just that far today, as we talk about for the few moments, for the moment that far, we'll look at a little bit later, a little further in the text. Are you ready for the seven lessons? How many of you are ready for the seven lessons? Could I see your hands, please? You know, with these lights in my face, it's hard to see all of you back there. 
but I hope that you can see me and see the screen, the seven lessons. Number one lesson is simply this, that storms do not necessarily mean that we are out of God's will. We often encounter storms, let me put it more positively perhaps, we often encounter storms in obedience to Jesus. Were the disciples out of God's will? Of course not. They were not at all out of God's will. As a matter of fact, wouldn't you like to have the will of God that clearly pointed to you? Get into that boat and go to the other side. And yet, in obedience to Jesus doing God's will, they encounter one of the greatest storms that they have ever encountered on Galilee. Now, let me ask you a question. That, uh, remember this, that uh, the smoothest path in life is not always the holiest path. Sometimes the holiest path is the roughest path, and you may be in a storm in your marriage, in your business, in your education. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are out of God's will, because it is God who sometimes leads us into storms. The Bible says regarding Jesus that it was the Spirit that drove him into the desert to be tempted of the devil. So if you're in a storm today, it doesn't mean that you are out of God's will. You may be smack in the middle of God's will in obedience to Jesus and having a very rough experience and the wind may be against you. So lesson number one, in fact, if I might be even clearer than I have been so far, that storm was created by Jesus for these disciples. And your storm may be the very same way. So don't say you're out of God's will just because you're in a storm. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two is storms should remind us of the promises of God. Storms should remind us of the promises of God. When we encounter a storm, we should run to the promises. You say, well, where is that in the text? When Meldon is preaching, you should always keep your finger in the text, and you should say, now, now where's he finding that in the text? Well, look at what it says. Jesus said, go to the other side. In effect, that was a promise that they would make it to the other side. He said, meet me on the other side. Listen, if the creator of the winds and the oceans and the waves tells you to go to the other side, you will make it to the other side. Did you know that in Canada, I'm told it is still legal in church at least to say amen? Did you know that? So every once in a while, it's perfectly legal so far. Now, the point that I'm simply making is that there was no way that these guys could drown if they had listened carefully to the words of Jesus. If the creator of the winds and the oceans tells you to go to the other side, you'll make it to the other side. If you're to be hung and you're walking in the spirit, you will not drown. <laughs> you know, uh, in fact, uh, you think, for example, John was on this boat and had not yet written any of his letters in the New Testament, nor his gospel. Peter was here, and Peter was still to die a martyr's death, as were a number of the other disciples. And so God still had a purpose. And if I might say this in a day of violence, and you know in Chicago there's lots of violence, but also I'm sure here in beautiful British Columbia, and it is beautiful, I hope you appreciate that fact, 
The fact is, amen, yeah, thank you, honey, I, I take anything at this point. Uh, the simple fact is that um, when we stop to think of it, Jesus Christ is with us even in the storms of life. And we must remember the fact that those disciples still had a purpose. As long as God has work for you to do, there is no combination of demons and evil men and murderers who can put you to death if God thinks there's still something left for you to do. So these disciples in going across the lake were safely in the hands of God. Now, when I was growing up, we used to sing a little ditty, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. That's not true, by the way. God made promises to Abraham that he didn't make to me, but there are plenty of promises to cleave to when we are going through a storm. What about Romans chapter 8? Nothing shall separate you from the love of God. Tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, peril, sword. In all these things we are more than conquer. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things coming, nor things in the past can separate us from the love of God. I know I quoted it too quickly because we have to hurry, but you know those promises. I'm thinking, for example, of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, where God says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Did you know that in the Greek text, there are five negatives in that verse? God is saying, I will no not leave you. I will no not forsake you. Never, 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 never. And when you're going through a storm, you cleave to the promises of God. There's a third lesson, and it might be the most important to you today, and that is this, that even when we cannot see Jesus, listen to me today, brothers and sisters, even when we cannot see Jesus, Jesus can see us. Let me ask you, there on Galilee, as they were crossing the sea in the darkness, could they see Jesus way up there on the hilltop and the hills in Galilee? are really called mountains. Could they see Jesus up there in the darkness? Of course they couldn't. But Jesus could see them. He knew the longitude and the latitude of their little boat. He knew the depth of the water. He knew the speed of the wind. And you today who are going through that storm and you think to yourself, I'm being misunderstood. I'm being misunderstood. I am being accused of things I didn't do. I am going through a time of loneliness. Even when you cannot see God, God sees you with accuracy and knows all about you and all about your situation, and in that you can indeed rejoice. And when push comes to shove, as it often does in life, it is actually more important that God see us than that we see God. God sees you today. I have a friend who's in heaven today with whom I played tennis. Now, you must understand that tennis players often make very bad husbands and not so good fathers because, you see, to a tennis player, love means nothing. <laughs> so he and I would play tennis together, and he had terminal cancer. And um, when he learned of it, I walked with him through this until, of course, his death. But he told me one time he was in such pain, he left the bedroom 
in the middle of the night and went to sit on the couch. And he said that there in the darkness, he said, all faith drained from my soul. Nothing but darkness, nothing but unbelief. And there he was. And there are times like that in our lives. I've experienced times when I could not see God, and that's why that you should be involved in this church, by the way, involved in small groups and so forth. Why? Because of the fact that we need each other. There are times when others have to believe for us when we cannot even believe for ourselves because we have to ask the question of where is God. But when we ask that question, let us also remember that God sees us when we cannot see him. Well, there's a fourth lesson that we must learn, and that is simply this, that God comes to us at the right time. He comes to us, Christ does, at the very right time. Now, I read it a moment ago. It says, on the fourth watch of the night, four o'clock in the morning, four o'clock when it was darkest, four o'clock when the disciples were most weary, you know, if you do come with us to Israel, we'll go across the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And we can do that in about an hour. It isn't that far across the sea, maybe an hour and a half, and that's taking our time. And, and these men are working all night to four o'clock in the morning, doing the best they can. And they left in the evening, and they're still not to the other side they are weary, they are tired, they are discouraged, but at four o'clock when it's the darkest, Jesus appears. Jesus Christ often comes to us when we are most desperate, when we are willing to give up, when we throw ourselves at him because we have nowhere else to go. It is then that he shows up when we are most weary Rebecca and I know a woman who worked in the, what shall we say, the sex industry. We'll simply leave it at that. And she often prayed, oh God, get me out of here. But he didn't get her out of there. But one day in utter total desperation, she got down on her knees and she said, oh God, either get me out of here or kill me, but do one or the other. And she meant what she said. And that was the day she walked out. Today, by the way, she is married to a man and they are working with others who are broken in our society. And as you know, we live in a society that is very broken. But it's in desperation that God meets us. One of my concerns about the United States of America, and I have the same concern for Canada, is that we are in desperate straits. We're desperate straits politically. We're torn, of course, in America, especially racially and in every way. We are a very angry nation. Everybody is enraged about something. And the church is not yet desperate. And so we no longer pray because we're still not desperate. I asked a mega church pastor, what would it take for you to have a prayer meeting in your church? Because I had asked him, you know, do you still have a prayer meeting? No, there are groups of people that pray, but we don't, we don't have a prayer meeting as such. And I said, what would it take? I mean, what does it take? He didn't really give me a clear answer. God comes to us at the right time. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. And while his knife was gleaming 
in the morning light, willing to kill Isaac. It is then, at the right time, that God speaks to him and says, Abraham, don't do it. There's a ram caught in the thicket and offer him instead. He is the just-in-time God. He comes to us at the right time. Well, let's hurry on to lesson number five, actually. Our fears might be Jesus in disguise. Now, because you can see the notes, you can see that disguise is spelled that way, and it is spelled correctly. I once said this to somebody, and they thought, Jesus in disguise, you know, like American Airlines fly disguise of American Airlines. No, he comes to us in disguise, in camouflage. Jesus is walking across the water, and to the disciples, they cry out in fear, it is a ghost, and they are terrified. But actually, that which they feared was Jesus coming toward them. But sometimes we don't recognize Jesus because the way he comes to us is a very difficult way that he comes to us. He comes to us through cancer. He comes to us through difficulties. To go back to my friend Mark, I said to him one day, I said, Mark, I said, have you ever thanked God for your cancer? He said, I thank God every day because heaven used to be something very theoretical and now it is such a reality. But I can tell you this, that when he got cancer, he was not thanking God for it. When he was still able to play tennis and we'd sit down and cry together, full of fear, full of anxiety, he didn't see Jesus in that until near the end of his life. But Jesus comes to us in different ways. Many years ago, my wife Rebecca gave me an article which I wish I would have kept. It was about a couple that had a special needs child. And this child just basically ruined their whole life because they wanted to travel. Both of them had jobs, and, and now they, God gives them a baby that needs attention 24-7 with all that that means. And so they were angry at God. But this article was actually written when the child was now 13 years old, and the article said that we didn't realize that Jesus was coming to us in this child. Because in taking care of the child, we began to see ourselves. We began to see our selfishness. We began to have to trust God on a whole new level. And because of that, we began to see Jesus in a new way. Yeah, listen, if, if you only see the devil in your trial, and I know something about warfare with the devil, but if that's all that you see, it can become very discouraging. But if you recognize that Jesus sometimes comes in disguise and is trying to put his arms around us, that which we fear may be him, actually. The same storm that brought them the wind is the same storm that brought them Jesus. I marvel, by the way, at how wonderful Jesus is. He could have stilled the storm by staying on the shore. There are many miracles that he did at a distance, you know, be healed and 20 miles away a child is healed. He could have said, peace be still when he was there on the shore or on the mountain. But Jesus comes to us in our storms. 
He doesn't stay on the shore and shout orders. You're in a storm today. Jesus comes to you in that storm to meet you in your storm. That's lesson number five. Lesson number six is a little long, but I hope that you're taking notes. It's God's will that you do. I'm just telling you what God wants, but maybe the techno technological community can help you here get these and print them out. But the number six is simply this, that the water that threatens to be over our head, the water that threatened to be over their head is under his feet. Because... Um, you know, it says that Jesus was walking there in the water. I want you to visualize him walking on the water as if it is a marble floor. The winds and the waves are everywhere, but Jesus, the creator of the winds and the waves, the sovereign God in the flesh, is walking over those waves. What is it that the disciples feared? Well, they feared drowning, but they feared drowning, but the good news was that that which they feared Namely, the water was under the feet of the sovereign Christ. And today I want you to see Jesus as supreme. I want you to see Jesus as above every principality and every power and every name that is named. You may be going through a divorce and your first question is, how do I get even? Your first question should be, how do I glorify God in the midst of this and bring honor to Jesus who is sovereign, who is God, and you must realize that the storms that are coming in your direction are storms over which Jesus has complete sovereignty and control. Would have been a great place for another amen, but that's okay. So I want you to understand that. The battle has already been won. If we could only see how Jesus won a battle over the devil, for example, Colossians chapter 2, the scripture says very clearly that he was, ab was above principalities and powers, making a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Jesus, sovereign today. Jesus, the water that you fear. He walks above it as king of kings and lord of lords and god of gods. Well, we've actually come to number seven in our lessons, and that is our ability to walk. Our ability to walk depends on the focus of our eyes. I'm now picking up the text again, actually, and you'll notice it there. It says, uh, what is it, verse 26? I'm having a little trouble reading here in my old age. Peter answered him, Lord... If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out. I love this. There's a time for long prayers. Some of us sometimes have prayed long prayers. Your pastor Melvin probably at times has prayed a long prayer. But you know what? There are times for short ones. If you're going under the water, just three words, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand 
and saved Peter and pulled him up. Now, um, by the way, did you notice that he's the immediate Jesus? Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. Verse 27, immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, and now in verse, what is it, 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took him. Immediately, immediately, he's the immediate Jesus. But Jesus is there and says, uh, Peter, like that. Now, I have to tell you something. We as preachers, maybe Meldon has done it. Maybe he's been wise enough to put it in a better context. But some of us, we've criticized Peter. We've said, well, you know, for a moment, by the way, for a moment, if you had had your cell phone there with a picture and the ability to take a picture and you'd have been able to whip it out in time, for a time, you'd have seen two people walking on the water, Peter and Jesus. And we criticize Peter and we say, well, you know, he should have kept his eyes on Jesus. Yes, of course, he should have. But give him credit for getting out of the boat. I mean, I think that a wet Peter is better than a dry Thomas. And there are people here who accomplish, there are people, uh, Christians, who accomplish absolutely nothing because they're always playing it safe, always wanting to know in advance what the advantage is, never being willing to take a risk for God. Very seldom does something happen that's great without it involving some risk. I'm sure that beginning this church involved some risk. And so you always have to step out of the boat and say, Jesus... This is really walking on water, but my eyes are on you. Help me. And when you begin to look at the wind, as Peter did, Jesus is there to say, okay, I'm here to help you. I'll scoop you up and keep walking, but keep looking at me. Now, let me ask you a question. What was Peter's greatest problem? Was it the speed of the wind? Was it the height of the waves? Was it the depth of the water? No, because Jesus, none of those problems matter. It doesn't matter whether the wind was 35 miles an hour or the depth of the water was 20 or 80. It doesn't matter, I mean, not to Jesus. Peter's greatest problem was faith and faith alone. Being able to keep his eyes on Jesus. How long do you think it took Peter before he began to sink? Well, probably a matter of seconds. How long does it take you and me to get our minds off of Jesus? It can be done very quickly. We can leave here today and we can end and we can have a benediction and maybe we're going to sing a hymn. I don't know how this is going to end. But I'll tell you this, that you can get into your car and have an argument with your wife on the way home. That's how we are, how quickly our minds get away from Jesus. If I might refer to my friend Mark again, about a week or two before he died, I said, Mark, how do you keep your mind on Jesus? And he pulled out of a drawer a laminated sheet of paper on both sides. Maybe it was two sheets. And he said, I have 120 promises here from the Bible. And when he said, I become fearful, and when I begin to think about stepping from this life to the next, he said, I go to the promises of God. There is no easy way to keep your mind on Jesus. You can say you're going to do it, but the best way is to memorize scripture. The best way is to stay in the word. The best way is to have those promises 
that you hang on to because you know that you and I very quickly get our mind off of Jesus and we're impressed with the depth of the water, the speed of the wind and the big waves and we're looking at all this and we're forgetting that Jesus comes to us in the midst of that storm. Tony Evans, whom you probably heard of, a great African-American preacher who's a good friend of mine, tells this story that he and his wife, Lois, were on a cruise. And it came over the intercom that buckle down because we're going to go into some very rough water. There's a storm that we're going into. His wife, Lois, didn't like it very well, so she tried to phone the captain, actually spoke to his assistant and said, excuse me, why are we going into the storm why don't we just uh, buckle down and put down the anchor, let the storm blow over, and then continue the journey. The assistant said, I'll talk to the captain and I'll get back to you. So a few moments later, the guy calls back and said, I spoke to the captain. And he has two things to say to you. And I'm sure the first was said very diplomatically. He said this, uh, tell that woman that I'm in charge and she isn't, good, good word there. And then he said this, and I want you to write this down. It's not on your notes, but God wants you to be able to remember this. And I don't want you to forget it. He said, tell that woman that this ship was built with this storm in mind. When you trust Jesus Christ who died on the cross and was raised again and was taken to heaven as the triumphant Christ, that ship was built with your storm in mind. And he can handle it and get you all the way to the other side of the lake. And that's how Jesus helps us. And you know, Jesus said to Peter, come, and there may be some of you who have never savingly trusted Christ. So for you to keep your mind on him, you're saying, my goodness, all this is new. I know about Jesus, but I've never savingly believed on him. Jesus would say to you today, come, get out of your self-satisfied, self-righteous boat and come to me. And not only will I help you through the storm, but I'll be able to take away your guilt. I'll be able to make you a child of God and give you a sense of dignity and you'll be with me forever. If only you admit your sinfulness and trust me and trust me alone and I will make sure that you get to the other side of the lake. Now I've been around long enough, longer than Meldon actually. I hope you recognize that. I've been around long enough to see people who rather than trust Jesus, their boats are shipwrecked along the shore. And some people have to be shipwrecked before they turn to Jesus. May that not be true of you. See if I can read this. It says, One ship sails east, another west, By the selfsame winds that blow, Tis the set of the sail and not the gale that determines where we go. Everybody has a storm. Question is, will you endure it alone? Or will you see Jesus in your storm? He'll take you all the way 
to the other side of the lake. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you might take these words, and we pray that as people have heard your voice, as believers, may they be strengthened in their faith. If they are unbelievers and have never savingly believed on Christ, overcome their darkness, their blindness, help them to see that we have a Savior who can actually save us and take us to the other side of the lake. Do that, Lord, because we are needy. May those who need to call upon you do so, because all of us need you all the time. In Jesus' name, amen.